of the places in the Bible that says that most clearly is Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a print Bible, I encourage you to open it to Ephesians chapter 2. If you go to about the three-quarter mark, you'll be right around Ephesians. And then uh, you can also start your Ocean View smartphone app or follow along with the verses on the screen. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them, At that time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Well, Paul certainly doesn't beat around the bush, does he? He says we're dead in our sins. He says we are gratifying the cravings of our flesh and deserving of wrath. And as human beings, none of us want to admit what we've done is wrong. And in fact, in our idea, in our culture, that's actually an offensive idea. That's what I've called our first point, offensive idea of number one. We are dead in our sins. Uh, So this week I did a little pop culture research and found some pretty funny attempts by celebrities, sports stars, and uh, politicians to make excuses for the bad things that they have done. First one I want to introduce you to is Luis Suarez. He is a World Cup soccer star plays for Uruguay, or as they say, Uruguay, and uh, he has a history of biting opponents. I don't know why he does it, but they're playing, and he's wrestling for the ball, and he'll just, last resort, he'll bite the guy. And so it's happened a couple times, and in the last World Cup, it happened. And so he was dragged before FIFA, the soccer governing body, their disciplinary committee, and he's, they said, so what, what happened? Like, what are, you, what are you doing? This was his excuse. I love this. He says, I lost my balance and ended up falling on my opponent. At that moment, my face hit the player, leaving a small bruise and sharp pain in my teeth. Like it was actually the other guy's fault. And everyone, you know, there's a million replays and you can clearly see it. So in the end, he had to fess up and he attempted to say an apology. This is the definition of a non-apology. He said, my colleague, Giorgio Collini, who got bit, suffered the physical result of a bite in the collision he suffered with me. (laughs) Apparently, he's still being tested for traces of remorse. (laughs) Then there's former mayor of Toronto, Rob Ford. When asked in 2013 if he smoked crack cocaine, considered very poor form for an elected politician, he admitted that, yeah, he had done so. But it was probably in one of my drunken stupors, (laughs) probably approximately about a year ago. To his great surprise, the media attention didn't end there. Like, just shocking. You can just, amazing. This is one of my favorite ones. Actress Lindsay Lohan. She was uh, charged in 2007 on a high-speed drunken chase through Santa Monica, California. And when the cops caught her, they uh, asked her to step out of the car, please, ma'am. They made her walk the line, in which she was all wobbly and everything. And then one of the officers says, ma'am, w- what's in your pocket? And so she reaches in, pulls out a small bag of cocaine. And they say, what is that? And she goes, oh, my goodness. She goes, I don't know. This is the best excuse ever. She goes, I'm wearing someone else's pants. 
<laughs> they're not my pants. Yeah, like nobody believed it then, nobody believes it now. And uh, last but not least, can't leave the politicians out of this, Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House of Representatives of the U.S. Now, he's a Republican. He ran on a platform of family values. Only problem was he's been married three times, and two of his wives he cheated on. And he divorced them while the first one was recovering from cancer and the second one was battling MS. But if you're Newt Gingrich, you just soothe voters by explaining that it was patriotism that made you do those things. This is his excuse. There's no question at times of my life partially driven by how passionately I felt about the United States of America that I worked far too hard and things happened in my life that were not appropriate. So your patriotism led you to have two affairs. Uh-huh. We human beings don't like admitting that we do wrong. We try to cover it up. We gloss it over. We reword it so it doesn't sound so bad. But the Apostle Paul, under the whole inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, comes along and says the opposite. He says we are all dead in our sins and transgressions. And that is so crucial to face up to and admit. Christian writer and thinker Ravi Zacharias says this, he says, man is not just unethical, he is lost and dead spiritually. The biggest difference between Jesus Christ and the ethical, moral teachers who have been deified by man is that these moral teachers came to make bad people good, but Jesus came to make dead people alive. And if we are going to comprehend these two huge Reformation ideas of by grace alone and by faith alone, we need to understand that we aren't just a little bit flawed. That we don't need just a little bit of rehabilitation and we'll be okay. The Bible tells us loud and clear that we are actually dead in our sins and transgressions and we stand guilty before God. So now that we've understood how desperate our situation was, that we have violated God's perfect holiness, we're completely unable to fix the problem on our own, then we can feel the impact of these two transforming ideas of grace and faith. We're going to pick it up in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order to show that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace, what an incredible, beautiful, powerful word. The basic definition of God's grace is that he gave us what we completely didn't deserve. Something happens when we fully grasp that idea, when we receive God's grace. It reaches down into our hearts, begins to change us as people. Love that phrase, God made us alive with Christ even 
when we were dead in our sins and transgressions. So does the human race deserve it? Do we deserve God's grace? Well, we're pretty bad, as we just saw, at admitting that we even do wrong. But then we think about what our human race does every single day. We allow people in our world to die because of water-borne diseases. That is completely fixable. Our world also allows people to starve to death when, in fact, there is more than enough food for everybody. The human race turns a blind eye to corruption at the highest levels of large companies and governments. The human race, every single day, sees the covenant of marriage betrayed and affairs spring up. Do we deserve God's grace? No. But he offers it anyways. When you really begin to think about that and understand that, it's mind-blowing. But then right away, our deeply, deeply ingrained human desire to justify ourselves jumps in. To the idea that we should somehow earn God's grace slips in. But that is not how it works. There is nothing we can do to earn the grace of God. J.I. Packer, one of the most brilliant uh, Christian scholars and thinkers of the last hundred years, says it wonderfully in his article on this idea. He said, Rome, the church in Rome, had said, God's grace is great, for through Christ's cross and his church, salvation is possible for all who will work and suffer for it. So come to church and toil. But the reformers said, God's grace is greater, for through Christ's cross and his spirit salvation, full and free with its unlimited guarantee of eternal joy, is given once and forever to all who believe. So come to Christ and trust and take. And you know what? Given the choice, when you walk by the Jehovah Witnesses standing on the corner and they are working so hard to try and earn their salvation. And you compare that to grace. I'm not sure about you, but I will choose grace every single time. Bono from U2 has penned some incredible lines in a song simply entitled Grace. He writes, grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be her name, grace. It's the name for a girl. It's also a thought that changed the world. And when she walks in the street, you can hear the strings. Grace finds goodness in everything. She travels outside of karma. She travels outside of karma. When she goes to work, you can hear the strings. Grace finds beauty in everything. And it's true. It is by grace we have been saved. The idea of karma from Eastern religions, you get what you deserve. And I've had so many conversations with people who don't yet know Christ in our community here in Ladysmith. And they tell me the definition of karma in conversation almost like it's an unshakable law of the universe. They always say to me, you do good to others, it will come around to you. You do evil to others or bad to others, that will come around to you. That is how a world apart from God functions. But God in Christ breaks into that endless cycle and turns it upside down. And grace says, I forgive even though you don't deserve it. Karma gives you one chance. You do something bad, it comes back on you. Whereas grace gives a second, third, fourth, fifth chance. Karma is based on the past, 
the good or bad that you have done, grace points to the future and builds in the future. In fact, it builds in the eternal future. And the Apostle Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, continually points us back to Jesus as the one who is the means of that grace. Paul writes, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And in the 16th century, as those Protestant reformers began to understand and and began to write about this idea and it began to, to transform their entire understanding, it quickly spread all over Europe. The concept of grace challenged everything that the church had been teaching for hundreds of years. The idea that you could do something to earn that forgiveness, you could go to a priest and confess your sins, say a certain amount of prayers on your rosary, be do good works as penitents. That fits so strongly with our, our human need to justify ourselves. But the reformers stood up and said, no, we've been misunderstanding this. We've, we've gotten away from what the Bible proclaims. And God knew that that idea, that human desire to justify ourselves, God knew that that would take such a deep hold on our hearts that one more time in the plainest possible language, just in case we were tempted to confuse it all, he restates it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can buy can boast. You can't make God love you by what you do. But that sense of trying to work harder for God, you know what? It's so subtle. It creeps into people who are following Jesus, who have claimed to, to accept Christ and his payment for their sins. They did that initially. They lived in God's grace. But subtly over time, that sense that we got to keep doing something to earn it creeps in. That legalism Christian author Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing in Grace, talks about his own experience. He says, I grew up in a church that drew sharp lines between the age of law in the first half of the Bible and the age of grace in the second. While ignoring most moral prohibitions from the Old Testament, we had our own pecking order of sins, rivaling that of the Orthodox Jews. At the top, were smoking and drinking. He says, I grew up in the southern U.S., however, which had a tobacco-dependent economy, so some allowances were made for smoking. Movies ranked just below these vices, with many church members refusing to even attend The Sound of Music when it came out. Now, that is a shady movie, if I've ever heard one. (laughs) Just kidding. Rock music, then in its infancy, was likewise regarded as an abomination, quite possibly demonic in origin. Other prescriptions, wearing makeup, jewelry, playing or watching sports on Sunday, swimming, uh, men and women swimming together, skirt length for girls, hair length for boys, were heated or not heated, depending on a person's level of spirituality. I grew up with the strong impression that a person became spiritual by attending to these gray area rules. And then he says this incredible line, he says, for the life of me, I could not figure out any difference between the air of law and the air of grace. And then he notes this. He says, My visits to other churches have convinced me that this ladder-like approach to spirituality is 
almost universal. Catholics, Mennonites, Church of Christ, Lutherans, Southern Baptists all have their own custom agenda of legalism. You gain the churches and presumably God's approval by following the prescribed pattern. It's so subtle, it's so deadly, and every one of us is susceptible to it. But in Christ, God says loud and clear that our relationship with him is made possible by grace alone. So the obvious question, if God is so gracious, then why isn't everyone in the world automatically saved? The Reformers proclaimed that God's grace in Christ was available to everyone, but not everyone was saved because of one simple fact. We have to choose it and accept it in total trust, and that is faith. Packer Gain is helpful when he reminds us, faith is our act, but not our work. It is an instrument of reception without being a means of merit. It is the work in us of the Holy Spirit who both evokes it and through it ingrafts us into Christ in a, such a sense that we know at once that the personal relationship of sinner to Savior and disciple to Master and with that dynamic relationship of the resurrection life communicated through the Spirit's indwelling. We are saved only as we put our full trust in Jesus' obedience to the Father on our behalf. It is so important to your spiritual life and to my spiritual life that we hear and listen and accept these two foundational ideas, grace alone and faith alone. So important that we actually hear them over and over and over again. Because the moment we stop hearing, the moment we stop taking that message deep down into our soul, you know what happens to us? We get dragged back into that idea that we have to earn it. That if I only served a little more, if I only prayed a little more, if I only read my Bible more, then God would like me more. That's not true. It's absolutely not true. Well, one of the things that concerned the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century and has concerned Christians ever since is, man, if we just say it's all by God's grace, won't that mean that people will just start sinning all over the place and just Christians will just live any kind of crazy way they want? And that's the genius of Ephesians 2.10 after the most clear statement of God's grace, that we couldn't possibly earn it, God has these amazing things to say in Ephesians 2.10. I'm going to get Dan to throw that up. He says, for, an amazing word for. It means everything that I've just told you, here's the reason. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, God says, I have given you the most amazing gift of grace. I have restored you back to myself. I have given you this immense joy of our salvation. And out of that, out of a sense of gratitude and thankfulness and heart change, that is the best way, that's the, in fact, only way to transform a heart so that we will want to do good works. It becomes the fuel for life-changing contact. The genius of God's plan is ultimate that we aren't 
saved by good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. That is freeing, life-giving, purpose-giving, and satisfying. The Boston Globe newspaper in January of 1990 carried an awesome story about an extremely unusual wedding banquet. A woman and her fiancé went to the Hyatt uh, Hotel in downtown Boston, and they were there to plan out their wedding reception. Both of them had expensive tastes, and they had saved up their money. And so they sat there, and the maitre d' came and gave them all the, the different things to look at. And they made selections about the menu. What would they eat at the wedding reception? They, they chose their favorite china. They chose their silverware. They chose their flower arrangements. And they went all out. They spared no expense. And at the end of it, the total bill came to $13,000. And so the hotel required that you leave half of that amount as a down payment. So the couple happily did that and went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. The day came when the announcements were supposed to go out into the mailbox. But you know what happened? The groom got cold feet. I- I'm just not sure. He said, it's a big commitment. Let- let's just stop and think about this a little bit longer. When his angry fiance returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told her story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 of your $6,500 back. You have two options. You can forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry, I really am. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout dinner. Ten years before, the same woman had hit the bottom in life. She'd been actually living in a homeless shelter herself. But she had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, and set aside a sizable nest egg of money. Now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was that in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party like they never had before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) She sent... (laughs) That's pretty good. She sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. That warm summer night, people who were used to digging through dumpsters and peeling pizza off cardboard boxes got to dine on Cordon Bleu. Hyatt waiters and tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens, propped up by aluminum crutches and walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, addicts took one night off from their hard life on the streets and instead got to eat chocolate wedding cake and dance to big band melodies late into the night. You know what God declares loud and clear? We aren't saved by good works, but we are certainly saved for good works. And we live in a world that is so split by hatred, by violence, by corruption, that our world desperately, desperately needs followers of Jesus that don't try to earn God's favor, but because of his favor, we go out and bless the world. 
grace and faith. That gives us the kind of life that when we are 102 and we are lying on our deathbed and we look back over our life, we breathe a deep, contented sigh. Because we see that we didn't have to spend a life striving to hopefully maybe please God and maybe we can just get into heaven and spend eternity with him. Instead, we got to live a life so full of gratitude that it naturally spilled over into our good works. And then in the process, we made life better for our family, for our friends, and for our community. Now, if you've heard me preach before, you know I'm a big proponent that sermons aren't just meant to fill our hearts. They're supposed to get down, get into our hearts, and ultimately into our actions. So now that we've gone back and looked at these two amazing ideas of the Reformation by grace alone and faith alone, what are you and I supposed to walk out of here and do? Well, first application. Maybe you're here this morning, and if you're completely honest with yourself, you've never, ever come to the legitimate point of humility before God, where you fully accept and believe that you are spiritually dead in your sins and transgressions. If you've been clinging to the idea that the Christian faith is about helping bad people slowly become good, then today is the day. Let the Holy Spirit of God convict your heart. This is not a self-improvement project. This is about God in Christ doing something for you and I that we could never, ever do ourselves. Bring us back to be fully alive in Christ. Number two, if you've never accepted in the deepest part of your soul the grace of God, if you are still on the program of trying to work really hard, trying to earn God's favor, then today is the day. Let it go. It's an impossible task for you to try to tip the balance scale, to try to do more good than bad. It won't work. Admit it and receive God's grace. Maybe you've been following Jesus for many years, but maybe you've slowly and subtly, almost without realizing it, you've slipped back into that idea. That man, if I just pray and read and serve more, then God will like me more. Reject it today. Maybe you're here today and you've never ever made that step of receiving the grace of God. You've never taken that step of faith of embracing it. Then today could be a great day to do that. And finally, if you look at your life today and realize you're not serving, maybe you're not serving in church, you're not serving in our community in Jesus' name, then maybe today is a day to reevaluate. Maybe you've told yourself that serving isn't something required in being a follower of Jesus. Maybe you told yourself that you served many, many years ago, and that's good enough. Maybe you've told yourself you're simply too busy and you have too many other priorities. I want to say loud and clear, we aren't saved by good works, but we are certainly saved for good works. And Ephesians 2.10 ends by saying that God has prepared good works for us to do in advance. God already has a plan for us. We just have to join him in it. Well, the Protestant Reformation began 500 years ago, but I think it's a still ongoing Reformation in each one of our lives. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm going to ask uh, Kaylin to come up and pray.